Well, if you've been at ACAC for any length of time, you'll know that each October is set aside as Missions Month. And because of that, the remainder of this month, you'll be hearing from leaders in world evangelism. You'll be hearing from people who are on the front lines in missionary service. And all of our weekend services will be focused on missions, but not this opening weekend. Instead, this opening weekend, because it's the very first weekend of this month, I'm going to be focusing on something that you read from our 91-week journey. And this is the last time this calendar year I'll be preaching from our 91-week journey because it ends at the end of this month when we're focusing on missions. Then we'll be doing some other things, and then we will be starting the 91-week journey again, but with some adjustments and some changes. So for this calendar year, this is the last time the teaching will come from what we have read the previous week. And today, we're going to be looking at two verses from the book of Hebrews. Two verses that you read this past week. They're found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate or spur one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This weekend, I hope to change and influence your thinking about why you are here, about why you attend our worship gatherings, our growth groups, our Bible studies, and so on. And if you've ever purchased furniture from Ikea, then you'll be familiar with my title this weekend because my title is Assembly Required. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments by your Spirit, enable me to preach and teach your word faithfully. By your Spirit, enable each of us to understand it and apply it appropriately. We have sung, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We know that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us and melt us and mold us and fill us and use us. And as always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. The letter to the Hebrews that we're looking at today is one of the most frequently misunderstood New Testament epistles. And it's frequently misunderstood because people forget two essential things. They forget why it was written, and they forget to whom it was written. It was addressed to Jewish followers of Jesus in the first century, but specifically to Jewish followers of Jesus who were in danger of deserting Jesus, deserting the new covenant, and returning to Moses 
and the Old Covenant. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews repeatedly reminded his audience that Moses and the law were given the task of setting the stage for Jesus. But once Jesus arrived, their assignment was complete. Their assignment was finished because his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross took the place of the entire Old Covenant sacrificial system because all of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed toward the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. So if you were going to reduce it to a bumper sticker, you might say this, Mount Calvary replaced Mount Sinai forever. Once the substance has arrived, the signposts are no longer needed. So when you read those warnings, if we go on consciously sinning, after we come to the knowledge of truth, there is no longer any sacrifice for sins, that doesn't mean if you've come to Jesus and been born again and then sin that you're out of luck. That would contradict everything else the New Testament says. That was simply the writer saying to Hebrew people, before Jesus came, there were sacrifices for sins in the Old Covenant. But now that Jesus has come, those sacrifices aren't valid anymore. You can't go back to them for your hope. You can't go back to them for your forgiveness. You've got to stay in Jesus. Now, we all know that the letter to the Hebrews wasn't just intended for Hebrews. <laughs> like all of Scripture, it was intended for all of us in the body of Christ. It was intended to keep believers on track. And as it does so, it reminds us of an important principle. Continual growth is essential to sustained faith and sustained assembly is essential to continual growth. Growth requires assembly. Now, that's such a core principle. I want you to read it with me in your best public speaking voice. Let's read it together. Continual growth is essential to sustain faith. And sustained assembly is essential to continual growth. Growth requires assembly. A number of years ago, it was my privilege to minister God's Word in an alliance campground located in the Northern California Redwood Forest. And I took my family with me. And we visited those majestic redwood forests. Now, as many of you know, those redwoods are some of the oldest and tallest trees in the world. Some of them are over 2,500 years old. Many of them reach hundreds of feet into the air. Now, given their longevity and their age, given their imposing size, wouldn't you expect that their roots would go very, very deep into the earth? That's what you would expect, but that's not the reality. 
The roots of the redwoods don't go very deep into the ground at all. So how do trees that old and that tall withstand the coastal winds on the northern coast of California? How do they withstand the strong storms? Well, their roots, even though they're fairly shallow, are connected. They are linked and locked with one another. So for one redwood to fall, a whole host of other redwoods would also have to fall. So when the winds blow, their connectivity holds them up. Now, that is a compelling picture of what the writer to the Hebrews was trying to communicate to the people of God. When storms come against our faith, we need to be connected relationally if we're going to hold up. Jesus' followers hold up by being connected relationally, not by being deep individually. Big difference. Connected relationally, not by being deep individually. The truth is, you can't be deep individually as a follower of Jesus if you aren't connected relationally. There are no deep lone rangers in the kingdom of God. Private faith is never deep. If you're going to stand when your faith is tested, you need to be committed to something that we read about in the Apostles' Creed. You need to be committed to what is called the communion of the saints. In other words, assemblies required. Now, God always has good reasons for his commands. And one of the good reasons for this command is revealed in our text in verse 24. Consider how to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. Now, that's one of those biblical commands that sounds rather innocuous. It sounds rather safe. Don't be fooled. It was actually a stiff rebuke of the folks who had already started neglecting the assembly. It was a stiff rebuke of the selfishness that all of us come by rather easily. It was a stiff rebuke of much of what passes for church. It ghetto slaps the person who says, I would go to church more often, but frankly, I don't get much out of it because it informs us that God doesn't call us to assemble primarily for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Why are we to assemble? That we might stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You see, Jesus didn't come to create religious consumers. He came to make mature disciples. Religious consumers think primarily of their own needs and they assemble for what they get out of it. Mature disciples assemble to address the needs of others and are concerned about what they put into it. 
They hope to influence their brothers and sisters towards greater maturity by means of their presence, their prayers, their praises, their love, their giving, their service, their words, their examples. Now, many times when you assemble with other believers, whether it's in the sanctuary or a growth group setting or a Bible study setting, your contribution to others won't be immediately obvious. In fact, some weeks it may appear to be little more than your presence. But do you know how important your presence is? We are living in our cultural context in an increasingly post Christian era and an increasingly secular spiritual environment. But when we gather together, our presence says to one another, we are not alone, not everyone is drinking the Kool-Aid of unbelief. There was an elderly saint I read about. He had lost most of his hearing and he had lost most of his vision. But yet, he came to the assembly every weekend faithfully. And finally, somebody asked him the obvious question. Why do you continue to attend faithfully when you can't hear what's going on and can't see what's going on? And his simple answer was, I want to show everybody what side I'm on. Your presence says, I'm on the side of the Lord. I'm not bowing my knee to atheism and secularism and hedonism. I have taken my stand for God. And when you're in the presence of other people who are standing for God, it encourages you to stand. Never minimize the impact of just being present. Now, the not-so-safe command to assemble also confronts those who would say, well, I don't attend the assembly regularly, but I read my Bible, I read Christian literature, I watch religious television, I listen to teaching online. Isn't that enough? And to that, this command says a resounding, no, it is not enough. Why? Because listening and studying in private does not enable you to stimulate others to love and good deeds. Because what you're doing, you're doing in private. And the command reminds us of two realities. When obedience to one command becomes a substitute for obedience to another command, it becomes disobedience. Am I to spend time with God in his word? Yes. Am I to study God's word on my own? Absolutely. That's what 91 weeks is about. But when 91 weeks becomes a substitute for assembling, you're violating a clear commandment of God. When you substitute private devotional life for public assembly, when you make that substitution, you actually move into disobedience. You see, the Word of God is not a choose-what-you-like buffet. Every line requires my obedience. Not just the things I like, not just the things I'm attracted to, not just the things that I find palatable. Every commandment of Scripture 
is my responsibility. And secondly, personal spiritual disciplines are good, but they're never as good as God intended until their results are shared with others. Personal spiritual disciplines don't replace corporate spiritual responsibilities. Your personal spiritual disciplines, though good and essential, don't replace your corporate spiritual responsibilities. Assembly is required. We can't promote the spiritual maturity of our brothers and sisters without contact because spiritual truth is more than taught, it also has to be caught. Most people, to catch a truth from God, need to hear it with the ear, and they need to somebody fl- see somebody fleshing it out in example. Truth is taught, but it also is caught. Our fellow believers need to see sermons, not just hear them. Now, like all of God's commands. The command to stimulate one another to love and good deeds by assembling regularly is regularly broken. And it's being increasingly broken in our American church context. It was not that long ago that the average American follower of Christ attended corporate worship and study every weekend. If they weren't sick or if they weren't at work, they were there every weekend. Now the national average is 50% of the time, two weekends a month. That's the average in our nation. And so it appears that we are violating the clear commandment of Scripture. Now, there are never good reasons for disobedience. (laughs) But that doesn't mean we won't try to come up with some. And one of the most common excuses I hear is the word offense. On more than one occasion, people have informed me they've stopped attending or they don't attend as often because somebody offended them or they were offended by something that was said Or their friend was offended and they have taken up the offense of their friend as their own. Now to folks who act that way, again, our text offers a very subtle but a very clear rebuke and corrective. The verse translated, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, is also translated, and appropriately so, spur one another to love and good deeds. If you're familiar with the spurs on the boots of somebody riding a horse, and if you're familiar with how spurs are used, you know it isn't a pleasant experience for the horse. Because the rider digs those spurs, those wheels with jagged, sharp edges into the side of the horse, doesn't injure the horse, but it gets the horse attention. And it's painful. And it says to the horse, you need to move forward or the spurs are going to be there again. Now, why is that a correct translation? Because that's one of the meanings of the Greek word. Stimulate 
or spur. There's only one other time this particular Greek word is used in the entirety of the New Testament, and it's when Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways, broke up their partnership, and the word is used that the thing that stimulated or spurred their going their separate ways was their disagreement about Mark and his performance and his potential and his trustworthiness. So, the two times that the word is used in the New Testament, one sounds positive, stimulate love and good deeds. The other sounds negative, but they're perfectly aligned, and here's why. Because sometimes we may need other believers to irritate us toward love and good works. We're not always going to be stimulated to deeper maturity in Christ by people who pamper us. Sometimes we need people to kick our behind repeatedly to spur us out of our mess and toward holiness in Christ. Remember what Proverbs 27 says? You do remember, even if you don't remember the reference. As iron sharpens iron... So one believer sharpens another. Well, you don't sharpen iron by pampering it. You sharpen iron by taking another piece of iron and rubbing it the wrong way. That's how you sharpen iron. And in the case of Paul and Barnabas, the Spirit used their disagreement to stimulate greater love and greater good works, both in Paul and Barnabas and in Mark. And in similar fashion, in the assembly of God's people, your true friends are not the people who always agree with you, affirm you, affirm your errors, co-sign your agenda, or own your offense. No, your best friends are the ones who make you better. That's why Scripture says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Wounds of a friend. We don't like to put those two things together, wounds and friend, but God puts them together, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. Sometimes the people who will spur you to greater maturity will initially offend you, tick you off. And in so doing, make you aware of your pride or your defensiveness or your selfishness or your misguided notions about why we assemble or your temper or your insecurity or your love of reputation or your love of power or any other love that betrays Jesus. The truth is holiness is often found on the other side of some offense. Somebody in the body offends me, I react strongly. God says, why are you so touchy there? Then he begins to instruct me, and then I can confess and repent and change and move to the next level of holiness. Holiness is often found on the backside of some offense. It's rarely found by those who walk out the door. You see, if if you're in an assembly and somebody in the assembly offended you, that's what God knew would happen in the assembly. 
And that's why he put you in it and commands you to be faithful to it. You see, the command to assemble does not have an exception clause for offense. There's not a little asterisk and down at the bottom, unless, of course, somebody has offended you. Now, there's no exception clause. Assembly is required. Now, this command to assemble regularly stands in stark contradiction to our culture because our culture is technologically saturated, scandalously superficial, inordinately busy, and extremely mobile. And in that cultural setting, many embrace the illusion of unlimited relational possibilities. What do I mean by that? They assume if somebody disappoints them, there's always somebody else with whom they can form community and a relationship. And so when people disappoint them, they quickly defriend them. They quickly block them. They quickly abandon them in search of the right kinds of people. But if you're a believer in the church, God calls you to cultivate relationships with people that you ordinarily wouldn't choose and then to stick with them come hell or high water. See, the world builds relationships upon chemistry. God's people are to build relationships on the basis of a divine command, a common identity, and a shared commitment to Christ. And those three things trump ethnicity, economy, politics, or anything and everything else. In the world, if you're offended, you walk out and seek alternatives. In the assembly, when you're offended, God demands you make adjustments. The world discovers that the grass, though it looks greener on the other side, still needs to be mowed. The faithful to the assembly discover that the temporary loss of chemistry in a relationship is more than compensated for by eternal gains in holiness and maturity. You know, we're prone to think of the early church as pure and uncompromised. It was not. By the time this letter was written, some of Jesus' followers were already in the habit of neglecting the assembly, and habits aren't formed overnight. Interestingly enough, the writer doesn't tell us why they weren't present. Probably because there are an infinite number of reasons for disobedience, and the reasons don't matter as much as the disobedience itself. If you want to disobey God, you can find a thousand different justifications. But suffice it to say, the Spirit obviously didn't see the fact that people were missing the assembly as a positive development. The Spirit made it clear if you've got to become who Jesus wants you to be, regular, intentional, planned assembly is required. Now, am I suggesting you need to attend every meeting of the church, be here every time we open the doors? No. Am I going to suggest some kind of arbitrary test or benchmark of faithfulness? No. But here's what I would like to suggest. If you can miss church without missing church, something is missing in you. If you can miss church without missing church, something is missing in you. 
And that something is an appreciation for and obedience to a clear, good, necessary commandment of God. See, in closing, I want to draw your attention to the fact that the contrast in verse 25 isn't between attendance and absence. It's between forsaking the assembly and encouraging one another. That's the contrast. And that indicates that God desires more than our attendance. He desires our participation. You can neglect the assembly even when you attend it. You can neglect it even when you attend it. You neglect the assembly when you come only looking to see what you can get out of it. When you show up late and leave early. When you hang outside rather than coming in. When you show up with a bad attitude. When you come totally spiritually unprepared. When you spend most of your time looking for something to criticize. When you act distant or unfriendly or you spend the time sleeping, talking, texting, or checking Twitter, Snapchat, or Facebook. You might be here bodily, but if you're doing those things, you're still neglecting the assembly. The American church desperately needs a renewed commitment to the assembly. As I said, believers in our nation now assemble far less frequently, despite the fact that this passage says, assembly becomes all the more critical the closer you get to the day of Jesus' return. How much closer are we now than believers were in the first century? See, the closer we get to Jesus' return, the more deception there is going to be in the spiritual realm. The writer to the Hebrews knew that. So he said, the closer you get to the return of Jesus, honey, you cannot afford to neglect the assembly. Ironically, in the American church, the closer we get to the coming of Jesus, the more we neglect the assembly. No wonder in so many places the church is a hot mess where people come to have their ethnicity, their politics, and their economics affirmed rather than having them biblically informed. No wonder in many places we have accepted a hybrid of civil religion, my politics, and Jesus that looks virtually unlike everything the New Testament describes when it speaks of the church. And I want to say the answer to this trend is not religious entertainment or the exhausting quest to be new and creative. Now, what is needed is a return to understanding and obedience. And the reason I say that is when people are addicted to the heroin of selfishness, you do not liberate them by creating new designer strains of heroin. And as I look across the Christian landscape in the United States, I see a lot of people strung out on the heroin of selfishness. I'm just here for what I can get out of it. And then the church tries to hold them by creating new designer strains of the same heroin. When what we need to do is call them to shun religious consumerism and embrace mature discipleship. You know, if you will assemble for the sake of others, here's what you'll discover. 
When we assemble for the benefit of others, our own lives expand. I'm not to come primarily for what I get out of it. I'm to come primarily for what I can put into it. But when I come to put into it, surprise, my own life expands. Beloved, if you're going to stand like those redwoods, assembly, connection is required. We don't want to see you regularly so that it pads the offering. We want to see you here regularly so that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and become a discerning disciple the closer we get to the day of Jesus' return. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful for an ancient reminder that was not only needed in the first century, it's much needed in the 21st century. And help us to know the difference between what I get out of it and what by your grace I can put into it. In Jesus' name, amen.